Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. What we try to do in Bloomberg Surveillance through all of this in economics, finance, and investment in these unsettling times is speak to people who are authoritative on military, thinking of the generals, the admirals we've spoken to, and now on the nuclear debate. And of course, all of that having to do with fears of Chernobyl and the other nuclear plants across Ukraine. Ernest Moniz is our gentleman. He is the former U.S. Energy Secretary, but hugely associated with his decades of work at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We're thrilled that Dr. Moniz could join us uh, this morning. I want to cut to the chase. How far out of line is Mr. Putin with the Geneva Conventions going back to the 19th century, prisoner of wars and all that, but with the Geneva and Hague Conventions that dealt directly with weaponry? How out of line is Mr. Putin? Well, uh, Putin's statements uh, about uh, threatening uh, the use of nuclear weapons are in fact, way out of line, uh, as you say, Tom, uh, and uh, actually quite quite reckless. Uh, it is interesting that uh, some of the Kremlin spokesmen have been trying to uh, dial that back uh, to what is the stated Russian policy, but clearly there's a lot of ambiguity, uh, a lot of uncertainty as to what the Russian military would like to do uh, if they are, in <clears throat> fact, bogged down in Ukraine, as they clearly are, uh, in various right. parts of the country. So uh, it's, a, it's a real setback uh, in terms of this uh, nuclear saber rattling. Uh, and uh, let's just hope right. that uh, they are not planning to use a, a tactical uh, nuclear weapon in Ukraine. Take us away from our amateur Hollywood stereotypes of the guy with a little black bag walking near President Biden, and we all look at it and know he's in charge of our nuclear capabilities. Does Mr. Putin have a guy walking around behind him with a little black bag with a red button on it? Well, that's that's called the football, right? Uh, uh, yeah, the fact is that uh, uh, Putin, uh, just like the U.S. president, uh, has the sole authority uh, to uh, to launch nuclear weapons. Uh, in the past, uh, when our presidents uh, in the United States have had some um, emotional uh, distress, uh, there have been attempts by others in the administration to uh, dampen that authority. But the reality is. Uh, we have sole authority, and we, by the way, feel very strongly that this sole authority uh, should be really uh, curtailed, uh, except in the most uh, urgent situation where you have no time for, uh, for consultation. Ernest, given the situation that we have and the imminent threat that a lot of people feel from Russia, how important is it for the world to remove uh, Russia really from the oil equation? In other words, what do you think the U.S. ought to be doing to allow Germany to become independent from Russian gas? Well, oil and gas are a little bit different, uh, Lisa. In terms of oil, uh, the Russians are clearly having trouble now uh, getting buyers. Um, uh, so, even, so even though we are not sanctioning, there is a kind of a, a customer sanction uh, going on, and that is affecting the ability of Russia 
to get oil onto the market, uh, they are taking a big, big discount, uh, $30 a barrel, for example, uh, on, on their oil. But to be honest, I think in the longer run, uh, and I, I don't mean years, I mean a month or so, uh, I think the oil markets uh, will basically recover in terms of su supply side. Again, Russia will take a big discount. Now, gas is very different. Um, uh, with gas, you don't have the same kind of global market. Uh, with cargoes, easy to move around to different places. Uh, you have, in this case of Europe, obviously a lot of pipeline gas, which goes from A to B, and that's it. Uh, and now, of course, with the, uh, the unrest, and even before the unrest, uh, the, the, that is the invasion of Ukraine uh, by, by Russia, gas prices in Europe uh, and in Asia we're going awfully high. Yeah. To give you a scale, in the United States, we're still talking about, say, $4.50, $5, uh, which is high for us. But in, in Europe, they hit $50, $60 per million BTU. Uh, extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, I spoke with a friend in the UK recently who said his gas bill for heating has gone up by a factor of four. And it's been a big concern, I know, for policymakers across the continent. I want to go back to what you were saying, where you think that the uh, demand and the supply, frankly, will come back online when it comes to crude, not gas. That You think supply will recover within about a month. What goes into that? Is this the idea that sanctions will be lifted? Is it that the U.S. can increase production? Is it reliance on OPEC plus? Well, I think it's a little bit of, of all of that, but, but a, a major part in my calculation is that I think uh, with the very, very large discounts, frankly, Russia uh, will begin to find uh, customers uh, taking that, uh, that oil. China will increase its, its imports. India is very interested in a, in a big discount, uh, et cetera. In addition, I think we are making some headway uh, in terms of reestablishing our relationship with the Saudis and the Emiratis. They may uh, push OPEC to slightly, at least somewhat more, uh, increase the pace. And of course, in the United States, I think that the president uh, meeting uh, with oil and gas company heads and with the heads of major financial institutions is very important because, you know, the financial institutions have been pressuring the uh, oil and gas producers to focus more on returning cash to their investors rather than expanding supply. Well, right now we have a uh, supply emergency of, uh, in, in a certain sense, and I think it's time to, uh, to do a little jawboning, if you like, and to uh, and have the financial and oil and gas executives come together uh, and recognize we do need some increase in, in, in supply. Ernest, do you think that Jennifer Granholm is doing a good job as re your replacement for many years ago? Yeah, well, uh, she's, I think, em emphasized uh, quite correctly uh, and very strongly uh, that we now need to start looking uh, together uh, at the climate uh, and the energy security imperatives. And I, I think uh, expanding that conversation out of the silos uh, where some want to talk about climate, some about security, some about geopolitics, some about infrastructure. We need to have uh, some about, uh, of course, environmental justice, social equity, very important when energy prices are going right. up. Uh, and what we need is a coherent discussion uh, across all of those areas. Uh, and they are in many ways synergistic. Uh, when you go to low carbon uh, electricity supply, for example, that helps energy security. On the other hand, it's a bumpy road 
And, you know, we're going to have to have some trade-offs uh, as we optimize all of our objectives. Mr. Moniz, I want to go back to our stereotypes. You mentioned silos, and that reminds me of 1964 and Dr. Strangelove. We all have frameworks of nuclear power. Maybe it's the tragedy of Japan. Maybe it's something else. If Mr. Putin has narrow, short-term, smaller nuclear weapons, what do they actually do? Well, first of all, um, uh, these so-called tactical nuclear weapons, uh, we should not think of them as really small. Uh, we might be talking, say, five kilotons of explosive yield uh, as a metric uh, or a standard. Uh, Hiroshima was 15, uh, but Oklahoma City, a chemical explosion, was two tons. So we're talking five kilotons. If that were dropped in a city, uh, it would do enormous damage and kill a lot of people. Uh, so the question is, uh, would the Russians follow a doctrine, uh, which is debated, uh, about uh, whether a small-ish nuclear weapon dropped in a place that did not do too much damage relative to, say, a city, uh, would that lead to de-escalation of a conflict or escalation? Uh, we think that the circumstances are uh, would would determine that in ways that are very difficult to calculate. So our our concern is that if this were to happen, uh, the situation could get out of control uh, through miscalculation, through blunder, misunderstanding, bad data, uh, uh, very very quickly, leading to a much larger uh, nuclear conflagration. Obviously, very very bad. For everybody, uh, very bad for uh, for for human civilization, uh, clearly. So it's very important uh, in our view that uh, that nuclear weapons continue to be unused and to be focused fundamentally on uh, on the deterrence value uh, in terms of not being the victim of a nuclear attack. Ernest, thoughtful stuff, deeply thoughtful stuff this morning. Thank you, Ernest Monista, the former U.S. Energy Secretary. He's been dead on about rising inflation and our need to adapt and adjust and be a new short essay which says simply, let's go. The only way is to slow things down. With perspective on this, Nora Rubini, Rubini Macro Associates, way too long. Uh, Nora, and of course, the boombus.com co-CEO associated for years with giving us wisdom Noriel, do you buy the idea that the only action that will bring down inflation is to dampen economic growth and increase in unemployment? Yeah, I, I, I have that same view. I mean, inflation right now is at the level we have not seen in decades. Uh, break-evens are suggesting that inflation expectations are also rising. There is the beginning of a price-wide uh, spiral. And, uh, and the other thing that happens is that uh, on top of everything else, a tighter monetary policy would slow down economic growth. But now we're facing with a negative supply shock that's coming from the Russian invasion of Ukraine that increases commodity prices, also slows down growth through global supply chain. So that trade-off becomes even worse before you, you put monetary policy into the picture because a stagflationary shock is a negative supply shock implies lower growth and higher inflation, everything else equal. And then them if you do and them if you don't in terms of monetary policy. 
if you care about inflation and anchoring inflation expectations, you have to tighten sooner and more. But that implies that the growth slowdown, if maybe even a growth recession, is more severe. And if instead you care about growth and then you normalize too slowly, you have the risk of de-anchoring inflation expectations. So that policy trade-off becomes even more severe. Nouriel, you wrote an article recently that I thought was really insightful. Uh, Basically, it's the new stagflation policy proof. Where does policy fit in to the next year, two years, when a lot of people say recession is nearly inevitable as we try to come out of this period? Well, again, you have a wide range of sets of policies. You have monetary policy, you have fiscal policy, you have sanction policy, you have regulatory policy. You could introduce price wage controls or indexation of wages to prices uh, like we did in the 70s. Uh, the trouble is that you have a bunch of policy tools, but you have also a bunch of very contradictory uh, goals. Uh, your goals are to have price stability and push down inflation is now significantly higher, but you also have a mandate about maximum employment that goes against right now, given the negative supply shock against that target. You want to keep uh, interest rates low, uh, long-term rates. That's a, actually a formal mandate of the Fed. And uh, of course, uh, higher rates are going to tighten financial condition. And then you want sanctions to punish uh, Russia and deter other people from doing mistaken things. So all these things imply that uh, reaching an optimal policy equilibrium is very hard because suppose that you want to have more sanctions and you want to have uh, you know, more fiscal stimulus, uh, sanctions to punish Russia and stimulus to try to support economic activity, both sanctions and a fiscal stimulus increase demand and increase inflationary pressure at the time where monetary policy is trying to instead achieve lower inflation. So, so there's almost a contradiction between the various policies. So what do you see, uh, Nouriel, as the likely outcome of this, as we do get this argument of whether a soft landing is possible? Um, I think it's going to be very, very hard for the Fed to achieve a soft landing. Historically, uh, you have to tighten more than otherwise when inflation is this high. I think that the dot plot of the Fed is not realistic. Having a Fed funds rate around 1.8 at the end of the year, where uh, core PC is going to be more like 3 to 4%, means that monetary policy is not going to be tight enough. And then you have two choices. Either you really tighten monetary policy because you're still behind the yeah. curve, bull and right, you need a policy rate at 3% by the end of this year, in which case you cause a recession. <laughs> Or you wimp out because you're worried about growth and you're worried about the debt trap. Right. A situation where the private and public debt is so high that when you raise right. rates then you destroy the debt markets. And whether you wimp out because of worries about growth or about debt markets, they're connected and therefore you may end up not doing as much and de-anchoring yeah. inflation expectations. So you have to choose between recession or the anchoring inflation expectation. You cannot have a soft land. Nario, quickly here, I love to end this with you because it's always so constructive. You and I were in a bar once at Davos and we were talking about four standard deviation moves as being a shock. German inflation is seven plus standard deviations. Italy reporting tomorrow looks like it's six plus standard deviation move over the long-term disinflationary trend of Italy. What does the society do with that? Well, as you point out, you are already very uh, standard deviation away, semi-black swan events on things like inflation, not just in US, but also in Europe. Of course, we've had also these major geopolitical shock, that is the war, and it's just a symptom of a much broader geopolitical depression. I think the next few years, 
China and its effective allies, Russia, Iran, uh, North Korea are going to challenge the U.S. and the West. So I think that the war in Ukraine is only the first salvo of this Cold War 2.0. I mean, the question is not whether it's going to be a Cold War or whether eventually we're right. going to have a war between the West and China and so on. So we are in a very difficult situation where extreme things are happening. And like, you know, on the eve of World War One, financial market, bond market did not price in at all the risk of a, of a major war. And then stuff happens. So not only we have major events that are radically different, like a quantum leap, but we don't have the policy okay. to address this. <clears throat> Nora, I'll tell you what we're going to do here. We're going to continue on radio. We're going to bring this conversation over to myself and Paul Sweeney with Dr. Rubini. We'll do that here in a bit. Let's get to it. Megan Green joins us, Global Chief Economist, Coral Institute, with work at Harvard Kennedy School as well. Megan, I want to go to your wheelhouse, which is the transatlantic dynamic. You and I studied theories in textbooks. Those theories don't work anymore. Given the uncertainty and the algebra of all this, the epsilon on the right-hand side of the equation, given all this uncertainty, what's the new central bank transatlantic theory? Yeah, I mean, we're looking at massive policy, monetary policy divergence between the Fed and the ECB, um, and that's going to be difficult to sustain. I mean, the EU inflation print is is pretty shocking, and headline inflation year on year just under 10 percent. Of course, you've got to strip out a bunch of commodity and energy costs um, to see what's underlying, but... The ECB is committed to winding down its its bond purchasing program first before it starts hiking rates. Um, so it won't manage to get rates up until the end of this year at best. In the U.S., meanwhile, economists are kind of trying to out-hawk one another with the number of rate hikes they can call for for the U.S. Uh, and so the U.S. is going much more aggressively than the ECB is. Um, we know in general that, that monetary policy divergence is impossible to maintain <clears throat> over a period of time. Right. So if the Fed is hiking aggressively, uh, you know, either it's going to have to back off or other major central banks are going to have to catch up. And insofar as inflation right. is way higher than the ECB wants it to be, I think the ECB is going to become much right. more hawkish now as well. Let's go all Mundell on you this morning. You know, you studied your Robert Mundell, the, the, the great of Colombia. Uh, Columbia. I, I mean, currency is the release valve here. Does that hold given these unique unset of uncertainties? I think it does hold. I mean, if the Fed is hiking much more aggressively than other major central banks, I think the dollar will appreciate. Um, and that could cause disturbances across emerging markets, of course, uh, because all of these dollar bonds are going to be more expensive to service. Trade, which has been invoiced in U.S. dollars, will become much more expensive, so that's bad for importers. Um, there is talk off the back of uh, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine of the dollar system shifting. I don't buy it for starters, and even if it were to, it's gonna take years and years. So I, I think we can expect the dollar to appreciate, and that could be problematic for other parts of the world, particularly emerging markets. So Megan, you have to weigh in on the big question of the day, the does the yield curve matter or does the yield curve not matter? We have a lot of people coming out, including the Fed saying you're looking at the wrong thing and other people saying the time that you say this time is different is the time you end up with egg on your face. Where do you stand? 
I don't really think it matters that much. Um, for starters, the 210, uh, you know, inverted for 23 seconds, which is, is not long enough to really provide signal. <laughs> now, the yield curve inversion is way more effective than any economist, including me, in terms of calling recessions. So there is that, but the sample size isn't huge. I think we need to look at the shorter end of the yield curve um, in order to get more of a signal. And don't forget, the U.S. government has been borrowing a ton to pay for things like the pandemic response. And so that will push the short end up without making any commentary on expectations about growth. And the Fed is, has wound up its bond buying program. And so, you know, that, that could push the short, the long end down. And so, you know, I think these are bigger factors than the idea that investors expect a recession to come. That being said, it's going to be really difficult for the Fed to hike rates aggressively, which the Fed itself expects to, and have no perceptible impact on unemployment. And we know from the SOM rule that if unemployment goes up, a weighted average of unemployment goes up, uh, then it's it's a much better predictor of recessions than the yield curve is. And, and I think we'll see that happen. So I'm not so worried about the yield curve, but I do think there are other signals um, that could be coming down the pike as the Fed hikes aggressively that suggest we will be pitched in recession. Megan, are you already seeing signs that the consumer is losing appetite to absorb price increases to a place where you start to wonder about how much momentum is there in, frankly, household balance sheets? Absolutely. You know, this income squeeze from higher energy costs is real on top of, you know, elevated inflation already. I think everybody is feeling it in the U.S. Um, it's perceptible. And so that is weighing on spending. On top of that, we know that stimulus payments um, provided a cushion for many households, uh, but low-income households in particular have probably just about burned through that entire cushion by the end of this month. And so they're facing this double whammy of no more cushion and much higher prices. And of course, they have the highest marginal propensity to consume. So they're spending the biggest proportion of their income anyhow. Um, and so that will weigh on consumption too. And of course, consumption is the biggest driver of growth in the US like every other developed economy. So we were always expecting a slowdown this year. Um, energy prices were already expected to be elevated even before the Russia-Ukraine crisis. This is ju it's just worse than we had expected, but a slowdown was inevitable. The question is, does the Fed hike so aggressively now uh, that a recession hits rather than just to slow down. We were growing way above potential coming into this year. There's a we lot were. of room to slow down. Megan, what you said, said moments ago, though, I think the answer to that question is buried in it. You mentioned the SAM rule. So let's talk yeah. about that. Unemployment's already sub four. We've got people thinking it can go lower on Friday. Given the starting point of this tightening cycle and given where unemployment is right now, Bill Dudley, the former New York Fed president, came out earlier this week and essentially said a hard landing is all but inevitable. Would you go with that? Yeah, like I said, I think the Fed's forecast that it will get that many rate hikes off and there won't be much, and it will affect inflation, but it won't affect unemployment much and it won't affect growth much, just doesn't add up. Um, and I do think that unemployment will probably rise as the Fed hikes. And so I, I do think that's a great indicator that a recession is coming. Megan Green, thank you, of the Kroll Institute. Thank you very much. 11-day winning streak on Apple. What a run. The longest winning streak since 2003. Seema Shah joins us now, Chief Strategist of Principal Global Investors. Seema, can we just start there? What do you make of this rally in big tech, uber tech, in the face of what's happening in the bond market? 
Yeah, look, I think a lot of it is some of that short covering, but I think that there is still that fundamental story. So let's say you are worried about the growth outlook um, and you think that potentially, although there is some upward movement in bonds, probably still a little bit further to go, it's probably near its top. Then that structural story of, of uh, strong balance sheets, positive cash flow does play pretty well for mega cap tech. So from our perspective, you know, although we've dialed down our risk um, in US equities, our preference is still on that mega cap mm -hmm. tech space because of that fundamental story. Seema, John Maggie, the arch textbook of the 1940s, where we came up with the language of trend, intermediate trend, long-term trend, whatever trend you want to use. Are we in a bear market? And is this is an intermediate bull trend within a bear market? I don't think it's, it's quite the bear market, but I would say that, look, the risk, you know, what is the upside for equities from here? I don't think it's that much. Uh, maybe for the S&P 500, you can eke out another 5%, 10% gains. But the downside risks are so great at the moment. Not only is, of course, the geopolitical crisis going on, which can shift at any moment. I think it's very difficult to predict that how that's going to go. But then you have the Fed hikes, which are moving very, very sharply forward. You have very high inflation, which means that consumers are going to start feeling a bit of a struggle, if not already. Um, so for us, it's the time to dial down risk, even if it's not necessarily a bear market. The risks are just too great at the moment. So just to go a little bit existential, what does it mean to be risky at a time when cash is a depreciating asset? And this is why I was talking about Apple or some of these haven stocks uh, being stocks, equity, considered risk. How much do you buy into that kind of argument? I, I think there's a lot in there. You know, at the moment you look at cash and, well, you know, inflation is going to eat most of that away very quickly. So we're still looking for those inflation hedges within that risk matrix. Um, and there are parts and segments such as mega cap tech, which do look relatively safe. But of course, there are a lot of challenges there if you continue to see moving uh, bond yields up higher. But I think from our perspective, that inflation hedge, where are you going to go? It's still the commodity space. Um, but you do have to think in that, in that way of that relative trade. Um, and where else is there beyond cash? Because inflation doesn't look good for that. For that April part 13th is the date in my diary, Seema. JP Morgan earnings. The attention is going to switch pretty quickly. Is the outlook getting better for earnings or is it getting worse? I think for the time being, I think Q1, um, I think we have to avoid getting too negative about Q1. Uh, the economic data numbers are still pretty robust. I do think that as, as you get into the second half of the year, that you start to see some of that slowdown coming through. Um, so, you know, we're going to be looking out, of course, for margins, you know, where are the pressure points coming through? But I do think that Q1 could still be a relatively robust number it's when you get into the second half that some of those concerns start to come to the surface. Seema, thank you. Seema Shah of Principal Global Investors, looking ahead to earnings season. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.